0: Studies here at Cato, and I am perhaps the person most pleased to see you see you all here uh, to have this long overdue public discussion uh, among practitioners and policy analysts about the imperative of anti dumping reform i 'm pleased for one because after eleven years at Cato, I have learned that being an anti dumping policy wonk uh, doesn 't necessarily translate directly into being able to hold court at cocktail parties and at dinner parties. <laughs> Uh, scandalous in in its own right, anti-dumping seems to be less riveting, uh, maybe less likely to grab and hold people's attention than some other topics that tend to envelop this city. So what I've learned uh, is that if you want to keep people's attention and have a lengthy conversation about something so technical, so legalistic, so esoteric as anti-dumping, you need to throw yourself uh, your own conference and coax guests with, uh, with good, intelligent speakers and with good food and refreshments, uh, and then shout to the conference staff, quick, bolt the door. <laughs> but I suspect any audience that would uh, willingly subject themselves to three and a half hours of discussions about anti-dumping is comprised mostly, mostly of anti-dumping enthusiasts, uh, as it were. So it, it, it's good to be in the company of this uh, little community of hobbyists, as we congregate in a safe haven, where in-depth anti-dumping discussions are not only permitted, but but encouraged. The US anti-dumping law still enjoys broad bipartisan support in Congress and within pockets of the executive branch. Although some of that support can be chalked up to politicians representing the narrow interests of influential constituencies that have mastered the use of anti-dumping and its highly misleading rhetoric, much more support, in my opinion, stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose, history, mechanics, and consequences of the law. Too many policymakers passively accept the anachronistic rationalizations preferred by the steel industry, labor unions, other big anti-dumping users, and their hired guns in Washington. Too many buy into this idealized imagery of a patriotic, upstanding American producer working tirelessly, to ensure the preservation of well-paying American jobs for hard-working Americans, but is suffering the ravages of unscrupulous, predatory foreign traders intent on destroying U.S. firms and monopolizing the U.S. market. What politician can oppose could oppose a law uh, presumed to protect that kind of company against that kind of scourge. But when the curtain is peeled back to expose the operation of the U.S. anti-dumping law, one discerns a very different reality. Anti-dumping measures always raise the costs for firms and downstream industries that rely on affected inputs. Uh, The law routinely claims domestic firms as victims. The law is often used as a tool by domestic firms, waging battle for supremacy over other domestic firms, completely defying this foundational us versus them premise uh, of the anti-dumping law. Uh, Sometimes foreign-owned firms are the petitioners, and US-owned firms are the respondents Rarely do anti-dumping restrictions lead to job uh, restoration in the industries seeking protection. And never, never is the allegation of unfair trade substantiated, or even investigated for that matter. Myth and misinformation explain the persistence of the US anti-dumping regime. I was hired at Cato in October 2000 to head up what was called at the time uh, the Project on Anti-Dumping Reform, And we estimated it would be a two-year initiative. (laughs) The purpose of the initiative really was to remove the shroud from around the enigma that conceals the mystery of the anti-dumping law. And by exposing for policymakers and the public the huge disconnect uh, between the rhetoric and reality of anti-dumping, significant reform would be made possible. Well, 11 years later, 13 policy papers, a few journal articles, dozens of op-eds, meetings and speeches, and one book later the anti-dumping law is still intact, uh, with very little in the way of reform to note. So we may have underestimated the challenge. Nevertheless, we produced a lot of materials uh, that should be useful for the ongoing effort to reform, or preferably, from my perspective, to abolish the anti-dumping law. In 2002, Cato published a couple papers written by Brink Lindsay and me. Uh, Anti-Dumping 101, the devilish details of unfair trade law provided a step-by-step guide uh, on how, about how dumping is defined and measured in the United States. And we identified several methodological quirks uh, employed by the Commerce Department uh, when calculating dumping margins, which results in leading normal, healthy competition to be stigmatized as unfair uh, and punished with often crippling, cripplingly high anti-dumping duties. Today's second panel is going to get into some of these details. Uh, The second paper uh, that Brink and I did was reforming the anti-dumping agreement, a roadmap for WTO negotiations in December 2002. Uh, At the time, Doha seemed like the the clearest path to anti-dumping reform. Uh, And we put forward 21 reform proposals uh, that would bring anti-dumping into line with the justification for the law's existence as put forward by the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and prominent supporters of the anti-dumping law uh, in the trade bar uh, here in Washington. Uh, The first panel will get into some of the details uh, that we described in that paper. We also did a paper uh, on uh, non-market economy methodology in China called Non-Market Nonsense. And we described in detail how non-market economy methodology works and how it really has no bearing in reality. The second panel will speak about that as well. Uh, We did a paper called Shell Games and Fortune Tellers, The Sun Doesn't Set at the Anti-Dumping Circus. You know, we have some creative titles, but 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 the point is to try to shed light on some of these processes. Um, and we pointed out that the sunset review process doesn't seem to be working very well. At the time, the paper was published in June 2005, uh, there had been about seven years of worth of sunset reviews. And there were 255 cases reviewed in which the domestic industry demonstrated an interest in continuation of the order. And in all 255 of those 255, the Commerce Department found that revocation would be likely to lead to a recurrence uh, of, 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 of dumping. And 194 of those 255 cases, uh, the International Trade Commission found that revocation would be likely to lead to recurrence of material injury. I don't think that those ratios have changed much in the six years since that paper was, was published. So there's something about the sunset process it was hailed as a big uh, liberalizing achievement after, after the Uruguay round, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's done much to allow firms to escape uh, the punishment of anti-dumping. That's going to be discussed uh, in the third uh, panel today. Another paper we did is called Abuse of Discretion, <laughs> Time to Fix uh, the Administration of the US Anti-Dumping Law. And this gets into the question of whether the D- Department of Commerce has too much discretion in its administration of the law. Uh, I conclude that they do and as evidenced by uh, the dozens of uh, of court remands and WTO rebukes that have happened over the years uh, but the second panel uh, will discuss some of this as well. Uh, in last year late last year we published a paper called protection uh, made to order domestic industries capture and reconfiguration of US anti-dumping policy in that paper we describe how anti-dumping policy evolved from an obscure offshoot of competition policy into the predominant instrument of contingent protectionism that it is today. Uh, And we provide an account of some of the crucial statutory and administrative changes that have occurred over the decades. Really, the purpose of that paper was to demonstrate that the increase in anti-dumping activity uh, over the years reflects several developments that have nothing to do with foreign behavior whatsoever, uh, including a progressive expansion of the definition of dumping, relaxation of evidentiary standards. Uh, and a pro-domestic industry bias in the law's administration at the Commerce Department. Uh, The arcane mix of of, of statutory rules and discretionary whimsy that emerged as contemporary anti-dumping policy is a far cry from the first anti-dumping law, uh, both in practice and intent. Today anti-dumping is little more than an elaborate excuse for run-of-the-mill protectionism, and overwhelmingly U.S. businesses and consumers are its victims. The first panel is going to talk a little bit about that. Last month, we published Economic Self-Flagellation, How U.S. Anti-Dumping Policy Subverts the National Export Initiative. And that makes the point that, uh, that most U.S. anti-dumping measures are imposed on intermediate goods and raw materials, four out of every five in the last decade. So almost 80% of, uh, of all anti-dumping measures imposed between 2000 and 2009 were on crucial ingredients of production for U.S. manufacturers and other producers. That doesn't strike me as a, re- a recipe for competitive success. It penalizes producers in their efforts to compete at home and abroad. So at this time of growing concern over US competitiveness, when even this administration claims to be looking for ways to streamline regulations and reduce other burdens on business uh, so that they will invest and hire, it is utterly absurd uh, that anti-dumping reform was not only overlooked, but that the, uh, the Commerce Department has proposed to strengthen the law as part of the National Export Initiative. It's enough to make you lose faith in your public servants. The administration and Congress are concerned about U.S. manufacturing competitiveness. The anti-dumping policy very much needs to be on the table. With Fifty-five percent of U.S. Imports, uh, import value composed of intermediate goods and capital equipment uh, and, and manufacturing inputs accounting for four out of every five anti-dumping measures. The case is clear that anti-dumping victimizes U.S. business interests and undermines U.S. competitiveness. President Obama understands this fundament- fundamental relationship. Here's what he had to say when he signed into law the Manufacturing Enhancement Act last year. The Manufacturing Enhancement Act uh, eliminated tariffs on, in, uh, on imported inputs for which there was no domestic interest in preserving the tariffs. This is what President Obama said. The manufacturing, Act, uh, Ma- manufacturing Enhancement Act of 2010 will create jobs, help American companies compete, and strengthen manufacturing as a key-, key driver of our economic recovery. And here's how it works. To make their products, manufacturers often have to import certain materials from other countries and pay tariffs on those materials. This legislation will reduce or eliminate some of those tariffs, which will significantly lower costs for American companies across the manufacturing landscape, from cars to chemicals, medical devices to sporting goods, and that will, boast, that will boost output, support good jobs here at home, and lower prices for American consumers. Hmm. Does that logic cease to apply when the, where the anti-dumping law is concerned? It does. And the question is why? What is the justification for it? Petitioners' lawyers like to say, sort of tongue in cheek, that the anti-dumping law is a producer's law with no pretensions toward balance. Well it may benefit a few producers while punishing many, many more producers. And besides, just because it was designed to protect producers 90 years ago, the fact is that the economy has changed considerably, as should the law. We hear that the anti-dumping law goes after unfair trade, so therefore it's different. We need to preserve it. Really? It goes after unfair trade? How do we know that? There's no requirements in the law that anything unfair is to be demonstrated. Uh, the, 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 The justification for the law by its most prominent supporters is that there are artificial uh, benefits bestowed upon foreign producers through policy abroad. But all that is alleged and all that is found or investigated is whether there's price discrimination or sales below cost. And that is presumed to reflect market distortions caused by uh, policies abroad. But it's never investigated. So as a result, there's all sorts of collateral damage. We're, we're catching a lot of innocent Uh, uh, interests uh, up in the process because the anti-dumping law, though the rhetoric says we're dealing with unfair trade, doesn't address unfair trade at all. Uh, And for those of you that may be unaware, this is also pretty interesting. Uh, The U.S. has a formal complaint before the dispute settlement body in the WTO over China's restrictions on certain raw material exports. In that case, the USTR is presenting the same argument from a slightly different angle as what the president said with the Manufacturing Enhancement Act. The USTR says, China maintains a number of measures that restrain exports of raw material inputs for which it is the top or near top world producer. These measures skew the playing field against the United States and other countries by creating substantial competitive benefits for downstream Chinese producers that use the inputs in the production and export of numerous processed steel, aluminum, and chemical products and a wide range of further processed products. To my mind, the fact that the US maintains anti-dumping duties on three of those nine uh, raw materials that are subject to the WTO case against China uh, provides a pretty compelling argument for downstream industry standing and a public interest provision in the anti-dumping law. Uh, I think Louis is, in his discussion about foreign trade zones on panel three, will uh, touch upon this concern raised by the USTR. Now, I'm not a Pollyanna. Uh, I'm aware of the public choice problem that exists. Uh, I know about the concentrated benefits and diffused costs of the AD regime and, that how, and how that conspires to preserve the status quo. But those who want to keep the regime intact are more vested than those who want to reform, and that, that's what it boils down to in, in, basically in, in every policy area in Washington. But I think the calculations are changing. I think more policymakers are um, amenable uh, to change but need to be better informed about the cost of the AD, uh, the anti-dumping status quo. So the most compelling argument for anti-dumping reform has always been that reform is in the country's interest if we want to remain competitive. So with that background, let me describe briefly uh, the, the organization and purpose of today's uh, program. Uh, actually, since we started a little bit late and to preserve time for QA, I'm just going to mention the, the program titles and, uh, and, and the speakers, and we'll get into the panels. Um, the first panel is, is titled Announce of Prevention, Limiting the Scope for Collateral Damage in the Early Stages of an Anti-Dumping Investigation. Uh, so the, the panelists are going to look into uh, things like con, uh, con, uh, standing for consuming industries, public interest provisions, um, the the initiation standards, uh, things that happen as a result of, of, of cases being filed in terms of trade diversion, uh, retaliation. Uh, and the panelists are going to uh, include... Um, Mike Finger, J. Michael Finger, who's a trade economist and author. He's a former lead economist and chief of the World Bank's trade policy research group. Uh, Gary Horlick, who's a, a, a trade lawyer in town uh, for the law office of Gary Horlick. He's formerly in uh, the International Trade Council for US, uh, the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. Uh, and he's also the former head of the import administration at the Commerce Department. Uh, the other speaker on the panel will be Eric Autor, who's vice president and International Trade Council uh, at the National Retail Federation. And moderating that panel will be Louis Leibowitz, who's a partner at Hogan Lovells, and also chairman of the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones. In your program are more detailed bios uh, and more detailed descriptions of what each of the panels is about. But at this point, I am going to invite up the first panel uh, to, get, to get started.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Lewis Liebowitz, as, uh, as Dan so eloquently said, uh, and uh, uh, delighted to be here. Um, I first wanted to thank uh, Cato for sponsoring uh, this event. It's a tre- tremendously overdue uh, discussion, and I'm uh, looking forward to um, to hearing from everyone. Uh, it's a uh, a real all star panel on these issues, and. Uh, most of us have been working on these issues for um, at least as long as Dan has, some of us uh, even a little bit longer. Now, uh, there's there's been a dearth of analysis of the impact of anti-dumping laws, and we're going to get into that in the first panel. Um, I remember the last time uh, the ITC did an analysis of the impact of anti-dumping and countervailing duty remedies on the U.S. economy was in 1995. How many of you were in your current jobs in 1995? I was. Uh, I see Sam Gilston out there. He, he and I have traveled the uh, uh, the paths. Um, but I think uh, it's been too long. Um, and uh, again, I applaud Cato for for getting that uh, uh, getting the ball rolling here. Now, I'm going to um, borrow a little bit from Tom Friedman. Um, I must confess, I still read the New York Times once in a while. Um, and, Admitting that at Cato is quite something, but um, uh, I do. Recently, uh, Tom Friedman wrote a column about uh, Michael Sandel, who's the, uh, a professor at Harvard, um, a uh, uh, moral philosophy professor, and he has a course called Justice, which is the rage all over the world, um, and it's even a PBS series. So I'm going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions uh, in, the, in the Michael Sandel um, vein, First one, is it fair that the most often used trade-restricting measure we have in the United States ignores the effects on the economy of relief under that measure? Is it fair that the effects of these remedies usually, if not always, cause more economic harm than good? Is it fair that Congress has obligated federal agencies to ignore the effects of their actions on consuming industries? And is it fair that dumping and countervailing duty remedies force many companies to relocate offshore for manufacturing, which increases unemployment in the United States and eliminates many more U.S. jobs than they save or create? the other point that I, I want to introduce this, uh, this panel uh, with is um, the unique character of the dumping and countervailing duty laws in that it is trade policy by private initiative. Almost every anti-dumping and countervailing duty case is initiated by a petition filed by a private company with a profit motive. Um, with uh, the target being uh, their competitors, usually international competitors. Collateral target is, of course, their customers, which is a, uh, an odd juxtaposition, but there we are. Uh, the United States government, the Commerce Department, and the International Trade Commission is required to investigate these allegations, and Congress has given them great discretion, but the discretion is generally directed toward relief, not away from it. And uh, um, unlike many Federal programs, these uh, programs punish consumers. They push consumers to spend more money, even the non manufacturing consumers. And in so doing, they make the economic pie smaller. So all of those um, features uh, characterize the anti dumping and countervailing duty laws. Now, our first panel here. Um, three very knowledgeable speakers, and we're lucky to to have them all, uh, are going to talk about um, the early stages of these cases, Um, lax standards for initiation, as the the Cato program uh, describes it, Uh, asymmetric injury analysis, which is another way of saying lax standard for a preliminary injury finding, Uh, ignoring everybody other than the petitioners and the foreign producers, in other words, ignoring all of us um, and the consequent large uh, externalized costs to the economy. We're going to take up those, some of those issues later um, in the uh, in other panels. So first, I'd like to invite to the podium, and uh, we'd like to have you uh, come up here, uh, all of you. Uh, Eric Autour of the National Retail Federation. Eric.
2: thank you lewis and uh and good good afternoon everyone um'd like to thank Cato for for putting together this program i i could we, all of us could probably speak individually for hours on this issue and bore bore you all to death but I will try to limit my comments to uh to a uh a ten minutes or so um, well in looking at this issue uh I, I think it's important to begin this discussion noting an obvious point that the U.S. economy has changed profoundly in the nearly 100 years that the anti-dumping remedy has been part of U.S. law. One fundamental change is that U.S. companies in retail, manufacturing, and agriculture must now rely on global supply and value chains, which is a system of production and distribution that challenges the traditional concepts of what is a U.S. industry and what American-made means. Notwithstanding these changes, the anti-dumping law has largely remained stuck in an obsolete model of how the economy and commerce operate that may have been relevant 50 years ago. However, in the 21st century global economy, the anti-dumping law is becoming an increasingly an, an increasing impediment on the ability of U.S. companies to compete effectively in the global marketplace, and it ultimately hurts American consumers, as, as others have mentioned. As a result, There is a a growing call from the US business community in favor of fundamental reform of the anti-dumping system. However, the economic need to reform the AD system butts up against the political reality that the anti-dumping laws become a sacred cow in Congress and the administration in the debate on trade. Zealous support for aggressive use of the anti-dumping remedy is a standard line for members of Congress and a litmus test for trade officials seeking congressional confirmation simplistically justified in the name of fairness and leveling the proverbial playing field against supposedly illegal trade. In this environment, reform proposals that are opposed by industries that actively use the anti-dumping remedy are falsely portrayed as weakening the anti-dumping law. As a result, we remain saddled with a system that often punishes fair and legitimate commerce, is employed for anti-competitive purposes, encourages actions bordering on extortion, and places the U.S. government in the position of choosing winners and losers in fights that increasingly pit U.S. companies and industries against each other. I've been asked to discuss the adverse impact of the anti-dumping remedy on retailers and so-called consuming industries that rely on global supply chains, and to propose one modest reform to help address this issue. We'll first look at each of the problems in a bit more detail. As an initial point, it's been shown that anti-dumping cases do hurt the U.S. economy. A study, as was mentioned in the 1990s, requested by the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative and conducted by the U.S. International Trade Commission, concluded that on balance, the the costs the anti-dumping remedy imposes on the overall economy outweigh the benefits to individual petitioning industries. However, anti-dumping law currently does not permit weighing the costs and benefits when initiating an investigation and imposing remedies. And I'll give you an example. In 1999, a group of small U.S. oil producers filed anti-dumping and countervailing duty petitions against crude oil imported from Iraq, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. The potential imposition of an import tax of an unknown but possibly very high amount on oil from some major foreign suppliers on top of at that time rising gas prices would have had a devastating impact on the U.S. economy. Although it was clearly not in the U.S. national interest to let this case proceed, there was no mechanism under U.S. trade law to dismiss it on that basis. Anti dumping cases do benefit a small group of petitioning companies by shielding them from foreign competition and permitting them to raise their prices. But this benefit can come at a huge cost of serious and disproportionate harm to a wider segment of the economy. For example, in the 1980s, a small group of U.S. producers of flat panel computer screens filed an anti-dumping petition against imported flat panel screens from Japan. At the time, Japan supplied nearly all flat panel screens to U.S. computer companies for their production of laptop computers. As a result of the high import taxes imposed in this case, U.S. computer companies were forced to move their entire, almost their entire U.S. laptop computer production offshore at the loss of thousands of U.S. jobs. As a second point, by imposing duties on goods sold in in an export market at a price that is below the price in the home market or below the cost of production, the anti-dumping law often punishes the practice of price discrimination, which is selling products in different markets at different prices. Unless it's shown to be predatory behavior, there's nothing inherently wrong with price discrimination, which is a common and acceptable business practice that U.S. and foreign companies, including retailers, engage in all the time. For example, to move inventory, retailers sell goods that are past their selling season in factory outlets at deep discounts that may be lower than the cost they paid for sourcing the product. To fill seats, airlines sell some tickets at discounted prices that don't cover their costs and provide free trips to frequent flyers. Both sectors can do this if they can sell their other products and tickets at a price that offsets the loss and allows them to make a net profit. But punishing price discrimination inhibits competition between domestic companies, artificially inflates U.S. prices, and provides windfall indirect subsidies to certain U.S. industries and companies at the expense of others. This leads me to my next point, that the anti-dumping law does not reflect and is even incompatible with the way today's economy operates. In 2011, the U.S. economy is much more trade dependent and interconnected than when most of the current trade remedy rules were first written. To be competitive in this world, all U.S. industries now have global supply chains importing products from their foreign suppliers and exporting products to their foreign customers. In this world, trade remedy cases brought against imports into the United States have had a significant and adverse impact on U.S. retailers, farmers, and manufacturers, increasing costs and often undermining their ability to compete globally. In this world, Trade remedy cases are no longer a struggle solely between a foreign manufacturer and a domestic manufacturer. Rather, they pit American industries against each other, as we have seen in cases, for example, uh, uh, with steel and the automobile industry. When the importer is a manufacturer, losing this fight can force it to shutter its U.S. operations and move offshore. The anti-dumping law creates a very simplistic, mercantilist view of how the economy works divides the world into domestic producers, i.e., the good guys, and importers, the bad guys. It views the production process as solely where a good is manufactured in the U.S., which is good, in another country, bad. This approach is geared to the old economy when most of these laws were written and for traditional users of the anti-dumping law, basic commodity products, raw materials, inputs such as steel, chemicals, and cement. For example... Manufacturing represents the vast majority of the value-added in cement production, which requires little in the way of research, design, development, or marketing. The product and the way it's made also remain essentially the same over time. U.S. cement producer A procures all its raw materials locally to produce cement in its plant in Texas, which it sells to end users throughout the state. It files an anti-dumping case against a Mexican cement manufacturer which sells its cement to a U.S. importer who sells it in Texas. However, this approach is fundamentally flawed in the new trade-dependent interconnected global economy, especially when applied to new targets for anti-dumping actions, consumer goods. Unlike steel, chemicals, and cement, consumer goods are often characterized by short product cycles, licensing arrangements with manufacturers on patents, trademarks, and copyrights, and large costs for research, development, and design and marketing. These activities, not the actual manufacturing, represent a majority of the value-added portion of the production, much of which remains in the United States. Example, engineers at a U.S. electronics company A design and develop new personal digit, uh, a new PDA at their research and development facility in California. Company A contracts with Chinese manufacturer to assemble the product from components made in the U.S., Malaysia, and Korea. Company A's marketing department hires an advertising firm in New York for a campaign promoting the new product to American consumers, which is sold through U.S. retailers. The wholesale price is $200, of which Company A gets $100, $80 in profit, and a royalty of $20 on its patents. The research and development marketing costs in the United States are 75% of the value added for producing the PDA, which will have an effective product life of 18 months. Meanwhile, U.S. Company B, which manufactures PDAs in Massachusetts for another electronics firm, files an anti-dumping case against PDAs from China. Consequently, uh, Company A decides to sell its PDA only in Europe and Asia, shift future manufacturing to Thailand, move its R&D on PDAs to its facility in Ireland, and transfer the advertising contract to an ad firm in London. Also, the price of the PDA becomes higher in the U.S. than in Europe or Asia. The result is a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars to the U.S. economy. Sometime thereafter, Company B moves its U.S. assembly operations to Mexico to cut costs. Domestic petitioning industries commonly game the anti-dumping system simply to gain an advantage over their competitors. For example, in the 1980s, U.S. typewriter manufacturer Smith Corona filed a series of anti-dumping cases against its main competitor, Japanese typewriter manufacturer Brother, to avoid I'm sorry, Um, to avoid anti-dumping duties, Brother moved its production to the United States while Smith Corona moved its production to Mexico to lower its costs. Soon thereafter, Brother filed an anti-dumping petition as the U.S. domestic producer against Smith Corona typewriters imported from Mexico. Domestic petitioning industries have also been known to use the system to engage in a form of extortion. Uh, essentially uh, uh, going to foreign producers and threatening them with an anti-dumping case if they don't come up with money to help finance that case. Anti-dumping cases increasingly pit one U.S. industry against another. Uh, I mentioned the steel industry and the U.S. automobile industry, uh, which were on opposite sides of an anti-dumping action on st- on imported steel. Um, Finally, the initiation of an anti-dumping investigation or even rumors of possible initiation often onerously impact an importing country's industry by imposing costs that small and medium enterprises in particular cannot afford. It has a chilling effect on trade by creating unpredictability. Proceedings are overly politicized, inconsistent, arbitrary, and allow too much bureaucratic discretion for results-oriented outcomes with the highest possible margins." These problems are exacerbated by the fact that the United States has a unique system that imposes anti-dumping duties retrospectively and creates unknowable contingent liabilities for a U.S. retailer, consuming industry, or other importer. As a result, companies in the United States importing the subject merchandise may be presented with a bill by customs for duties on goods that were procured and sold months beforehand. There are many things that we need to do to address the problems and abuses of the anti-dumping remedy which other speakers will discuss in more detail. However, one essential reform that is to give greater consideration to the potential damage to U.S. companies adversely impacted by an anti-dumping determination by virtue of the fact that they have to rely on a global supply chain. This can be achieved by changing the rules that currently limit full standing in anti-dumping cases solely to the domestic petitioners and foreign exporters thereby severely limiting the ability of U.S. importers and consumers, those who pay the bills for those import taxes, to defend their interests. For example, granting full standing to retailers in the anti-dumping case against Chinese bedroom furniture would have allowed them access to the confidential information under Administrative Protective Order upon which the case is decided and provided them the ability to participate fully in the case. In investigations, targeting imported consumer products, retailers, not the domestic manufacturers, are the best source of information on market conditions that have direct bearing on key issues such as the injury determination by the International Trade Commission. However, it's difficult, if not impossible, to comment in any meaningful way on information to which you are not privy. In conclusion, we need to ask why we should sacrifice the interests of American retailers, manufacturers, farmers, and consumers to keep in place untouched and unimproved an anti-dumping system of questionable value to our economy. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Eric. Do you mind uh, standing up so they can see you.
3: Okay. That's
1: good.
4: Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, particularly in the company of uh, of these gentlemen who are fighting the good fight to maintain the openness of what uh, I think can be reasonably described as a, a fairly liberal US trading system. Eternal vigilance is the price of free trade and uh, these gentlemen who have accomplished me accompany me as panelists or the warriors who are at the frontiers defending the borders against the uh, threat from the Mongol hordes of, uh, of protection seekers, I I must admit that uh, I can't count myself among these warriors. I'm <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not a warrior. I only write stories about uh, these warriors. Uh, I've done. A series of stories over the last few years, in which I'm trying to understand the function of trade remedies, such as anti-dumping, in a, in a liberal, trade policy, and parenthetically, the function of sessions such as this. And in doing so, as as I get old, as as my short-term memory fades, I resort back to my, longer-term memory and my training in the 1950s in the institutionalist, existentialist tradition of social sciences at the University of Texas in those days. So going back to that perspective, when I ask myself what's the function of trade remedies or what's the function of anti-dumping in a liberal trading system, I explain it as follows. All dogs have fleas, therefore, all dogs have legs with which to scratch. Similarly, any government committed to a generally open trade policy will be pestered for import relief from time to time by one industry or another, usually on grounds that the situation is exceptional. It follows that governments will have procedures for find for fielding and managing such pressures, and my recent Work has examined how WTO member governments have used safeguards, anti-dumping, and other instruments of administered protection as management for domestic protection. Pressures for protection. Three conclusions have emerged from this work. First is that these provisions have been extensively used, but at the same time have remained under discipline. Application of the restrictions they allow has been minimal relative to the liberalization that the GATT WTO system has supported. Second, some reform-minded developing country governments have employed these rules skillfully in supporting their liberalization programs. I won't elaborate on that point today. And the final point is that anti-dumping is perhaps the classic example of a pragmatically successful flexi- flexibility instrument with pretensions, but no more than pretensions to a real economic rationale. As to the first point, I draw on in some of the papers, which I believe the Institute has made available, the World Bank database which, covering the period 1995, through 2009 tabulates the application of safeguards, anti-dumping, countervailing duties, and special safeguards against China under China's accession agreement. The database covers a representative sample of importing countries that account for about 86% of anti-dumping measures applied 2007 to 2009. Uh, The database shows that the share of imports subject to such matters has remained flat or even declined since the 1990s, minimally affected by the Asian crisis of 1997 or the global downturn that began in 2007. As of 2009, well less than 2% of import value was subject to trade remedies. For only four of the 14 countries in the sample, where the trade, me- trade remedy measures on as much as 2% of import value. How does this compare with the past part of what you see if you take an institutional evol- evolutionary look at these things as you realize that over the history of the GATT system, the favorite instrument for managing domestic protect- pressures for protection has switched from one instrument for to another in the 1980s, orderly marketing arrangements, or voluntary export arrangements, were by far the more popular instrument for managing such pressure. Sam Laird, when he worked at the WTO Secretariat, found that in 1998, about 15 percent of U.S. And European community imports were under VERs or orderly marketing arrangements. So if we compare the coverage of trade remedies now with the coverage of trade remedies in the 80s, we find that these gentlemen have indeed uh, done well by, by us. Peter Egger and Doug, Doug Nelson, looking at the impact of anti-dumping worldwide, estimated that over the 40 years, 1960 to 2000, anti-dumping has reduced world export volume by no more than 2%. Now, the conclusion one draws from this is not that conferences such as this are inappropriate or that the efforts of these gentlemen is no longer needed. Uh, to conclude that would be to conclude that since New Orleans has not had a flood since Katrina, there is no longer need for the levees or for maintenance of the, uh, of the floodgates. The third, bay, the third point, conclusion I've reached is a rhetorical point that anti-dumping, the most used, most used trade remedy is not about dumping in any specific economic sense. The battle which these warriors are fighting successfully is not about good import restrictions versus bad import restrictions in any economic or social sense. It is an existential battle simply about less restrictions versus more restrictions. Different people have stated this conclusion in different ways. Twenty years ago, I stated it as anti-dumping as ordinary protection with a grand public relations program. Gary Horlick and a colleague uh, stated the same point from the perspective of uh, motive rather than effect when they wrote that from the perspective of the U.S. industry seeking protection, these laws... The trade remedies laws simply represent different ways of reaching the same goal, improvement of the competitive position of the complainant against other companies. Alan Sykes, a law school lawyer, has uh, stated the conclusion. Similarly, you'll find several of these. Even even though this conclusion seems to be widely shared, uh, it's not all that widely accepted. Uh, Douglas Nelson, for example, in, a, in a, an extended review published in the European Economic Review, cited my, com- my comment about anti-dumping as ordinary protection with the grand public relations program and described it as hysterical rhetoric, as being wrong in virtually every essential way, and concluded that it does not help my conclusion was that it did help. It helped to switch the technical battle that these gentlemen have so long and so well fought into a political victory and not just a technical victory. I have evidence of this. And finally, in closing, I want to point out that the the war of rhetoric is still a long way from one, Though the warriors we have with us today have have done a lot to have the usefulness of imports recognized de facto, imports remain second-class citizens de jure. As to policy recommendations, some years back I pointed out to a group of users of imported steel that pornography is protected under the law so long as it has redeeming social value. I advise them to paint dirty pictures on what they imported, (laughs) then present it as pornography, pornography receiving better treatment under the law than imports.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Mike. Gary?
5: It just shows that US pornography producers are either less activist or less organized than US steel producers. We've heard already this morning, and I'm not going to bore you with more details, it's obvious, and there's no actual economic basis for anti-dumping laws or indeed any real political basis in a broader sense. The two justifications for anti-dumping is that dumping is somehow unfair economically. The WTO nowhere says anti-dumping is unfair. Um, a, another country, New Zealand, proposed to discipline dumping in uh, early GATT days, and the U.S. blocked it because the U.S. was well aware that much of what it exports is dumped. So the attempt to say dumping is bad in the GATT was blocked. Um, The the economics, you know, you wouldn't dream of having a modern economy internally that applied these rules. This is 70- and 80-year-old economic thinking and not even good thinking then. Um, That's not what I'm talking about, actually, here. I don't care one way or another for this purpose. I'm going to talk to you about numbers. In 1945, at the end of World War II, the US had 50% of the world's GDP. Duh,'d <laughs> you, know, you know most of the rest of the world had been destroyed in a war. We weren't. Uh, it was unreal to think that we would continue to have 50 percent of the world's GDP, and indeed we don't. We have 20 to 25 percent over recent years. Take your pick. We are the largest economy in the world by a mile. We are the largest manufacturer in the world. We are doing just fine. Yes, we are shedding manufacturing jobs, as we have shed agricultural jobs and every other form of jobs, as we become more efficient and living standards rise. If you want to go back to being subsistence peasants, you will have lots of people employed but not living very well. What has changed since then? Very simply, other countries have grown. There's nothing wrong with that. Everyone knows that. That what matters is that we do well, and that's very important to us. In the world of anti-dumping, that has all passed without notice. Anti-dumping remains in Hugh Hecklow's 1976 Iron Triangle in the U.S., where you have congressional people supported by special interests, Uh, and a bureaucracy within the government that function as a triangle to keep their boondoggle going. It is no more or less a boondoggle, meaning it's a big boondoggle, just like biofuels found, by the way, subsidized in the European Union and found circumventing it illegally by the Europeans, all the things we accuse foreigners of doing. It's a boondoggle like biofuels and like um, the bridge to nowhere, all of whom have their active lobbies supporting them. What's changed? The rest of the world has grown. So let's go back to where this was. 30 years ago, generally, and even today, the U.S. is by far the biggest market. Therefore, if you are a U.S. exporter, which is what I'm here to talk about, a U.S. manufacturer, remember, this is all these tears about anti-dumping or shed about manufacturing jobs in the U.S. We have to keep manufacturing jobs in the U.S. So if you are a U.S. manufacturer, your biggest market, biggest single market in the world, is, country market, is the U.S. normally. Therefore, if you are faced with an anti-dumping case in Mexico, in Malaysia, in South Africa, in Venezuela, in Chile, in China, in anywhere, very normally that market will be smaller for you than the U.S. market. There's nothing unfair about this, by the way. It's just the fact that we're big and successful. And I'm not sure anyone in this audience is going to say we shouldn't be big and successful, but if you want to, please make yourself known. Therefore, just being cold-blooded about it, you're more likely to walk away from defending that case than a foreigner whose biggest market, let's say you're Chilean, the U.S. may be your biggest market, not Chile. So this is not anything about fairness or unfairness. It means U.S. exporters overseas are more vulnerable to anti-dumping than foreigners selling into the U.S. market because, we, the, because of the WTO rules, the cost of doing a case overseas is not so much smaller than the size of the market. Indeed, as other countries have copied us, I've done case, worked on cases in 15 countries. Typically, the questionnaire I get when I'm representing a U.S. exporter is, surprise, a copy of Commerce's questionnaire. So it's the same size questionnaire. In fact, it's the same questionnaire, but I have to fill it out for a much smaller market. But wait a minute. I have to fill out a lot more transactions, because guess what? The U.S. market, my home market, is bigger. If I'm doing a case in Malaysia, I'm filling it out for several million transactions in my home market, and the Malaysian producers filling it out for several thousand in his or her home market. I repeat, U.S. exporters are face a tougher go overseas than foreign exporters here. But let's go further. In the U.S., we have an independent international trade commission, uh, which, whatever its foibles legally, which go back and forth between the courts and the WTO and whatever, is very independent. You cannot predict what it will do. That is not true in any other country of the world except Canada. Uh, where in every other country except Canada, in the end, a minister makes the decision. And often, that's a very predictable decision. So foreign exporter here, neutral court on injury. US exporter overseas, not neutral court on injury, right? Okay, let's keep going. Courts. US courts, not for any reasons of trade policy, but because of the way we were founded, dislike the US government. If you've ever represented the U.S. (laughs) Commerce Department or ITC in front of the CIT, you know that. Uh, They take it apart, the government apart, piece by piece. Other countries, for perfectly good reasons, have their own systems. Um, As one of my co-counsel in an Australian case explained, the court will uphold what the minister did unless it's clear he was drunk. Um, The... um, And there is this general deference, greater deference, overseas to governments than there is in U.S. courts. Not always, but in general. And indeed, that's the advice I get from my co-counsel when we lose a case overseas against, remember, U.S. manufactured exports with good American jobs, right? All the rhetoric. We're losing those jobs. So... Um, what is counsel? We say, can you sue? You usually get something like what my Australian co-counsel did or in one large growing market, when I asked my lawyer that, says, I won't sue. What do you mean? I'm not suing my government. What do you mean? It's not safe. Um, you can draw your own conclusions where this is, but it's a commonly occurring thing. Um, that leaves the U.S. exporter to USTR bringing a WTO case. So far, USTR doesn't bring many WTO cases against foreign anti-dumping regimes, and I can assure you it is strenuously opposed to doing so on anything the US does or might contemplate doing. Uh, This is a subject of some concern to me since I'm currently asking them to start some cases. So let it be clear I'm not bad-mouthing them, but let's go back to this. What you're talking about is an overwhelming focus going back... nineteen twenty-one. Ninety years on anti-dumping is about stopping foreign imports into the U.S. What's changed? We have to export. Anyone disagree? Anyone want to go to autarky? No volunteers. The biggest steel company in America is foreign owned, so is the third or fourth biggest. I mean all these things, all these companies are big multinationals. This is just a, a way of getting protection, as Mike pointed out. The reality is U.S. exports are just as important as U.S. sales in the U.S. market. They may be more important strategically, but our entire governmental system is, is based on keeping imports out through anti-dumping. No one thinks, and this is where I'm going to finish this part of it, no one thinks about U.S. exporters overseas. I would probably be perfectly happy if the Obama administration, in its national export initiative to double exports, has proposed 14 ways to keep out imports through anti-dumping, right? Everyone familiar with this? So I call Commerce up and start going through some of them. It's not that they'd consciously decided to screw US exporters. They hadn't thought about them. So there's a proposal to give foreigners less time to answer commerce questions, right? Sounds like a really cheap cheap way of, of getting margins up. We'll find adverse inferences more often. Go back to what I said. The U.S. exporters are going to have more data to go through than the foreign exporters. It's mathematical. We're a bigger market. In this case, where we're trying to get USTR to file it, um, we were asked, the Chinese, this was in China, the Chinese government had obviously been keeping a list of everything commerce had ever done to any Chinese exporter, and they did them all to us. So apparently Ch- commerce in one case, it might have been off-road tires, I'm not sure, some people here would know, asked for all purchases of the input, which was rubber. So it was thousands of purchases, fine. So the Chinese asked us, this was chickens, $800 million worth of chickens. so it's not a small export, um, for all purchases of grain. How many purchases of grain do you think US chicken producers make in a year? Anyone want to guess? You think it's thousands, hundreds of thousands? Try millions. They asked us for all sales in the US of chicken parts. Has any of you had any chicken recently? It's millions. So the idea that someone at commerce has this bright idea to increase U.S. exports by giving U.S. exporters less time to dig through all this data is ridiculous. That's where we are. So I want to add to the list, the U.S. government does not think about its exporters. Now, you tell me in the year 2011 if that makes sense. I want to turn to one other thing more technically and then finish, which is what we were asked to do, the initiation phase. This is just as true for U.S. exporters. We get cases against us where, for example, standing is never checked, where where a couple producers can bring the case and the foreign government never checks what other producers are up to, whether they care one way or another. Um, They they don't really check the 25%, they assume it. Often it's in countries where there's no data, so how do they know it's 25%? They don't check on the dumping calculation used, uh, even as much as commerce does. They don't check on uh, what standard of information you need to start a case. So cases are getting started. Once a case starts, go back to what I said, Almost no market overseas for a U.S. exporter, farmer, or manufacturer is as big as the U.S. It's much more likely that a U.S. company will walk away once a case is started than it is for a foreign company here. So it means that initiation standards here, which are copied overseas, hurt U.S. exports. I repeat, this is not going to double U.S. exports if you make it easier to stop them. Um, So the initiation standard's crucial. Uh, In the U.S., you have um, uh, real fights about this, but essentially it's really easy to start a case. And as long as it's really easy to start a case, other countries are going to do that to us. So I'm not arguing the rights are wrong of whether it should be easier to start a case. I'm arguing what no one in this city seems to think of is, do we really want to do that to our exports? Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. We are going to um, open it up to questions for a few minutes. Um, I have one if uh, no one wants to start out there in the audience. Okay. Um, Gary, I uh, uh, congratulate you for actually um, dealing at the uh, at the end of your uh, remarks with, with the uh, initiation standards. And I would like to ask uh, our uh, panelists for um, other thoughts on the solutions to, um, to this. In, in particular, um, it's been suggested to add some rigor to the initiation analysis. Um, speaking now in terms of the U.S., because we're trying to put them under the microscope here, um, what do you think they could do, um, either with or, or without legislative change, to add rigor to the initiation analysis and, uh, and not initiate maybe 100 percent of the cases that they get. Who wants to start? Well, I will. I don't think it's
5: strictly... uh, I include in the initiation process the U.S. um, ITC's preliminary determination. Fair. Technically, it isn't. In fact, technically, the U.S., when it initiates a case, is in violation of the WTO rules in every single case, because until you have the WTO, the ITC decision, the ITC's injury uh, check-off for initiations too small. Uh, but if you include the, w, the um, ITC as part of the initiation process, you have to relook at the standard, both in terms of maybe not legislation, but in terms of how it's interpreted. Right now, it's just too easy. Um, this has two parts. One is substantive, essentially. And I'm not, as I said, the ITC is independent, so it's not that they're being, doing this politically, but the standard is set quite low right now, um, that when in doubt the case goes forward. And that there could be a little more rigor in that. This, first substantively, secondly, procedurally, uh, the Congress gave the ITC precious little time to do these cases, 45 days. Um, uh, you have to really have to work backwards from that. You have to give the respondents, who are both foreigners, but also, as Eric might point out, Americans. <laughs> employ millions of people uh, in America, the same fair chance to defend themselves. Uh, Simply put, petitioners have as much time as they want to prepare their case, um, and a a well, certainly a a petitioner with decent lawyers should have the briefs more or less written, uh, the expert witnesses chosen, etc. The uh, respondents have no time. Questionnaires go out two to three days after uh, the the petitions filed, uh, the questionnaire itself, if, if the ITC doesn't know enough about the industry, could determine the outcome, and the case is over in three days.
2: Um, I'll just add to that, and, and, I, and I agree. I was going to say that the timing issue is really uh, a, a critical one on how quickly these cases proceed the, toward the preliminary determination, and it really gives... Um, uh, respondents and 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 importers uh, very little time in which to get organized. Um, you know, many of these cases um, are, you know, you, you, they're they're sort of sprung on you. You don't necessarily know that a case is in the works until it's actually filed, and then you're left with a very very short time frame to try to get your uh, you know a, a lawyer to represent you um, if you haven't done. Done so already, and and to prepare your arguments and going into the ITC to see what the question, how the questionnaires are structured, um, is, it is all very time consuming and with a very short time frame, it it's it's virtually impossible to do that. Now you know, it, just looking at 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 a couple of things that we've been dealt with. I mean, we've we've been preparing for the possibility of anti-dumping and countervailing duties on, on imported apparel. And done everything, including going into the ITC. I went in with Gary to talk about what a questionnaire in such a case might look like. In that case, you know you 're anticipating a case you 're preparing for it that that case is never materialized on the other side, you had wooden bedroom furniture from China at the time, the largest anti dumping case ever filed against China, and it was like that it was it was um, I don't think anyone was really prepared for it when it was filed. It left uh uh furniture retailers scrambling to to get uh, uh counsel in place to to get their arguments in place and they were really behind the eight ball. Um and um and it it really made it very difficult. It was the timing issue that really was was a was a, a critical factor there.
5: Just if just to switch it to commerce um Commerce is a little lax about what it'll take as a an anti-dumping allegation on the grounds that some things are not reasonably available to petitioners um, and allows substituting the petitioners' own data. Um, other governments are worse, <laughs> if it makes anyone feel better. Um, and that could use some tightening up uh, because you get some bootstrapping going on there. Um, the, But to go back to Eric's point on timing, often with consumer goods, you're dealing with things ordered nine months in advance. Um, So commercially, this timetable has no relationship to reality, none.
2: Uh, And another thing, and Gary's very familiar with this, is the ITC questionnaires, how they are structured is really critical. And with respect to consumer goods, you know, with the ITC that's used to dealing with things like ball bearings and steel and cement and stuff like that, when you're dealing with a consumer product where the price point is often determined by – what label is, in a, is, in, is on the product, and, 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 tire, and the safeguards against tires was a perfect example of that. You know, you had ostensibly the same, you know, it's a tire, but a Pirelli tire sells for a hell of a lot more than a, than a, than a low-end cheap tire, uh, not because there's such huge differences between them, but because you got that Pirelli brand on there. And that's just indicative of, of some of the things that the ITC really has to understand as they put together a questionnaire, particularly with respect to consumer goods, because they're just a whole different
1: animal than what they're usually used to dealing with. Um, yeah, Dan? This is Dan Griswold. I'll identify yourself for yourself.
3: the son There we go. Uh, Mike, I have a question uh, for for you, and I appreciate kind of the role you're playing here, although uh, you might think about the what's at stake here and uh, uh, think about taking sides one way or the other, because I think this is an important battle. But you, you said 2% of global trade is affected by these various trade remedies, and that sounds like a small, almost trivial amount, and yet 2% of the huge amount of world trade is quite a bit. You know, 2% of our GDP would be... billion, which would be more probably than the damage done by Katrina or September 11th or something like that. Anyway, my point is that's a lot of trade that's being interfered with by these remedies. And I wondered if does that 2% include the the trade that uh, doesn't happen just because of the chilling effect of the anti-dumping law, the very threat that uh, uh, importers will face uh, anti-dumping restrictions, the side deals that are done, the the self-restraint in price competition. I'm just wondering, is that such a trivial amount, or are we talking uh, real damage to the economy?
4: Well, as my grandmother would say, about two percent. You had it on the end of your nose; it wouldn't look so small. I agree with you on that point. Uh, the the number I cited was was. The percentage of imports of these 14 major imports that are now subject to trade remedies of the of the list I gave, you can infer from that uh, as you want to take up your own parameters <coughs> and elasticities as to what the real effect is, just as we get, you know, 60 <coughs> percent of imports are covered by, or duty-free, and the other 40 percent are covered by a tariff of, Six percent, or whatever it is. Now, the numbers that uh, that I cited uh, from Peter Egger and and Doug Nelson do try to take into into account the effects of uh, of anti-dumping on uh, on uh, you know these sort of oh my goodness. Uh, If we did it, we'd get hit by anti-dumping effects, too, and it still comes out uh, a reasonably small number. Uh, You know, uh, were you suggesting that I should pretend that the number is bigger than it is in fact is because it might cause somebody to say, well, we don't need the floodgates in New Orleans anymore? Uh, that's That's not my point. At all, uh, you know what? What keeps the system under discipline? Uh, I don't really know. The uh, the uh, the academic works is all on the other side of it. What leads to anti-dumping action? What rather than what doesn't lead to uh, to anti-dumping action? Sort of when I read the academic literature now, I kind of think that geez, the poor guys seeking protection have had a have had a tough time. Everybody's worked hard to prove that the reasons that they present for asking for protection don't make economic sense, but uh, we don't really know if the uh, if the uh, reasons on the other side. You know, it's it's an existential system. It's not about good versus bad. It's about more versus less, and so far as more versus less is concerned, I think these guys are, are winning.
5: Uh, let me add one number. Um, There have been, since WTO started, so 1995, roughly 3,600 anti-dumping cases. No, 5,000. No. Yeah. Okay. Trade remedies total might be there. No, even then. But anyhow, a lot. If there had been 100 unbindings of tariffs without compensation, people would go berserk. They'd just go crazy. But 3,500 or 5,000, it doesn't matter how many, if you call it anti-dumping, it's okay. That's why there are so many anti-dumping cases. You wouldn't dream of being able to do this with safeguards where compensation is required, eventually, or with um, unbinding of tariffs. You can't do it with subsidies because the subsidies rules, for historical reasons, are not completely irrational despite recent innovations. You need something with irrational economic rules so you can call all behavior, quote, unfair. And so you get into 3,500 potential tariff unbindings. The other statistic, and I don't remember it exactly, um, the Brazilian embassy here, which had a lot of interns available, checked every case against Brazil. This is about 10 years ago. Every single case. And what happened afterwards? And they found that imports of that product from Brazil went down afterwards, even if the Brazilian product was tossed out at the preliminary phase by the ITC. So just initiating the case has a negative impact on trade, even if the case dies 30 days later.
2: And in fact, Gary, even the threat of a case will have a potentially huge impact on trade, and I think about the... uh, the commitment that US uh, USTR made uh, a few years ago uh, possibly to self-initiate cases against Vietnam on clothing and just the threat of that chilled trade with Vietnam in apparel there were co- there were retailers who decided they could not bear the risk of the possibility that the US government would self-initiate an anti-dumping case and they said we're not sourcing in Vietnam anymore
1: Um, I want to just add uh, one more point, and then we have to go to break pretty soon. But I I think it's very important, and we're going to get to this issue later, too. The compensation in anti-dumping takes care of itself. It happens in the marketplace. There's no negotiation. Um, But people work around the remedy, and the consequences of that – can be different in different countries. Obviously, the exporting country is going to stop exporting to the country that that imposed anti-dumping duties on them if the duties are high enough. In the U.S., they're always high enough because we have that pesky retrospective system. You don't know what the duty is, so it's always high enough to stop you. Uh, Other countries don't have that, but they have other things. Um, And when you sort it all out, when you look at the companies that move production offshore uh, out of the United States— um, to, uh, to gain increased access to vital raw materials. Um, when you look at uh, third countries that shift their production and exports to markets that aren't as efficient uh, a, a, a target for them uh, as the ones they've been using because this big vacuum opened up, that uh, reduces efficiency. The net result, as Mike says, it's maybe a valid statistic, maybe not. Let's assume it's valid. It's 2%. Um, and that, that's the global impact. But from country to country, it could be much, much more than 2%. And no study that I have seen has really gone into that. We have been afraid uh, as a society to look into this issue for 15 years. Um, politically, it's not a good uh, you know high percentage shot to do. I hope this conference is going to help uh, get, get that uh, initiative started again because we need to know what the impact uh, is, and I can state with some assurance it's going to be negative uh, on the U.S. economy, um, but, and we can argue back and forth. That is one of the key drivers of this. It's, it's the compensation that isn't negotiated uh, that, uh, that really makes a difference in this particular law. Yes, sir.
6: you. <clears throat> Eric Solon and from Steward and & Steward, and I must say I feel a little bit like Daniel in the lion's den here today. I congratulate you for asking a question, Eric. Okay. Um, actually, a number of observations, uh, if you don't mind. Um, uh, keep it to small, because we're running yes, low on time. I, will. I promise we you. we have uh, soft drinks outside. I will. <laughs> uh, first, uh, it's to the comment about how the words uh, unfair dumping don't appear anywhere in the WTO agreements. I do think, though, that we all are agreed that in the GATT 1994 states specifically that injurious dumping is to be condemned, and that's what we're talking about here. It's not just dumping, it's injurious dumping. Mm -hmm. Second, um, I don't know about other countries, but the ITC maintains a website, on its website maintains annual statistics as to the percentage of U.S. imports that are affected by Uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigations going back to 1980. And if you take a look at that, since that period of time, it's been a total of perhaps 2% of total imports. And even less that have actually been then subject to uh, an actual order. Because third point, the commission makes negative determinations in more than 50% of the cases that are brought. So this is not a slam dunk by any means for domestic uh, producers. Final observation, I suppose, taking up Mr. Finger's comment that this is an existential issue, and it is a question of um, whose ox is being gored. But I would suggest to you all here that as someone who has represented companies and workers who have seen their jobs disappear, who have seen their plants closed because of unfair, dumped import competition, or because of floods of imports and surges of imports from China, that there is a very different perspective. About the, about the law and what the, the good and the value that it serves. Um, and I'm a little disappointed, frankly, that this uh, program today is not providing both sides of the story. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to the last question first, if I may. Um, I applaud Cato for having this discussion, and clearly uh, it, it proceeds from one side of the debate, there is another side of the debate. And I'll make a deal with Eric. We can have we can ask Cato, of course they can turn us down, to have an absolutely 50-50 debate the next time we have a 50-50 debate at the Congressional Steel Caucus. Now, Eric, you wanted to have uh, I time?
2: Add I, Yeah, I just wanted to address this this thing about uh, uh that, that trade remedies cases only represent about two percent of imports. Uh, you know when you look at it the big picture, it seems small, but when you look at the impact of on uh, companies and in individual cases, it really is quite um, quite significant and I point again to the case on Chinese uh, bedroom furniture. Um, when that case was filed, I had member companies, furniture retailers who said, "If this case goes forward and ends up uh, where it could, I will be out of business." And, uh, you know, so that, you know, that puts things a little more starkly. I know that the petitioners make the argument about where we're protecting jobs, where, you know, uh, we're being devastated by imports. But on the other side, you have companies like furniture retailers in that case who who would have been put out of business. And in that case... Was really one pitting two domestic companies, uh, uh, industries against each other. It was the domestic furniture manufacturers in North Carolina who had created this trade in the first place, by by outsourcing some of their production to China and acting as the middleman against the uh, against the U.S. furniture retailers who realized now wait a minute why should I go through a middleman when I can place my orders directly with the with the with the factory in China, and it became a fight over who was going to control the Chinese manufacturing. With both sides claiming that if they lost, they were going to be devastated and lose thousands of jobs. And um, but I, I can say in the case of the furniture retailers that that was uh, that was really I mean that was their bread and butter. So um, I just wanted to raise that example.
5: The just the two percent, um, the two largest steel importers in America, independent ones, I.e. not steel mills, the day a case is filed, stop buying from that country. No one's been shown injuring, no one's been shown dumping. They stop buying. So there's an impact there with nothing been been proved uh, because of the retrospective system. They stop buying, the two biggest, and they're both large. One's a big U.S. company, one's a big European company. They're not alone. The, yeah, this is quite common. So I don't think the 2% comes close to measuring what happens. Secondly, the GATT-94 language. The GATT-94 nowhere, nowhere says dumping is unfair. The WTO nowhere says it's unfair. The condemned language you're citing was added by Cuba and Lebanon. It was not in the U.S. draft. And God knows what can, you can get in a nice argument about what "condamne" and condemnado means in uh, Spanish and French. But neither of them means unfair.
1: Uh, last question, Sam. Sam Gilston, Gilston Communications. Hi, Washington Tariff and Trade Letter. <laughs> A question for uh, Gary. The uh, U.S. Trade Representative often uh, talks about uh,
5: uh, wanting to uh, fight unfair trade and level the playing field. What excuse do they give for not uh, being willing to initiate cases against unfair uh, use of anti-dumping, countervail um, laws in other countries? Well, they just initiated one against China for the U.S. steel industry. Mm. Draw your own conclusions. Um, I think they're getting better about it because they, rec- they can see the numbers. Um, so I'm not complaining they won't do it. And with luck, they'll do it for my client, uh, which has lost $800 million worth of sales. But... Um, U.S. sales, U.S. jobs, U.S. upstream suppliers, uh, all actually iconic American farmers, if you must know. Um, and, uh, but the, what's interesting is the process they have to go through is to make sure that they do not challenge anything the U.S. does or might do. So uh, we were chased out of the South African market 10 years ago, and they wouldn't file a complaint. On, and we, we were, the, what we wanted to complain about was not something the U.S. did on the stated grounds back then. That was under a Republican administration, by the way, that, quote, the panel might say something that might affect something we do. So it's just really, once you get into the only anti-dumping laws that matter are ours against imports, you make it really hard on yourself to be able to challenge other countries' anti-dumping laws. Not the panel making it hard. The U.S. has been quite successful. The few panels it brought, it brought a case against Mexico on high fructose corn syrup after a 96 to zero vote of the Senate, telling them to do so, and a vote and a case against U.S. on pork and rice, uh, after Senator Grassley told them to do so, and they won both. So it's they'll it's, be quite successful on cases they bring. As I said what's interesting is the Iron Triangle is so strong. You can't challenge some things even if they're wrong overseas. And I'm not criticizing USTR for that. It's a measure of the the p- politics of anti-dumping and how how much it's seeded 30 years ago.
1: Okay, I don't see any more hands up, so we're going to go to break. back at at uh, what in five minutes? Yes. Five minutes, you go out there and. Corey York soda.